Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. Thank you for the blue, beautiful blue sky and the green grass and all these beautiful things you have given to us. We thank you for each one that is here today. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would move amongst us, Lord. And we just pray against the raven of hell who wants to take away this morning what you want to give to us. And, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would be um, um, very present here today. Just bless Brother Roger today as he speaks your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would anoint him and you would give him clarity of thought, give him courage, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would be our mainstay. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. All right. Well, I also want to uh, welcome each one here. Um, you know, when I... when. Getting ready to preach a, a message. I know we're not supposed to do this. You know, preachers are supposed to just say, Lord, what do you want me to preach? And you, uh, you, you just go ahead and you prepare whatever God lays in your heart, and it doesn't matter who happens to show up. And yet, the temptation is always there to think in the back of your mind, well, who will be there this morning, and how many, you know, who, who normally comes to our services? And, and I'll admit, some of you that are here this morning haven't been in my mind all week. You, you've been... Uh, you showed up and it kind of you know made me think. Well, uh, wow! Now what what's how's this message that I prepared going to affect the, uh, these people? But that's okay. I'm going to go ahead and share uh, what uh, God has laid on my heart. Before I do that, though, I do have one more announcement. Um, this afternoon, we had uh, I'd sent a text around to I'm talking to the local church here about a brothers meeting, um, and we we were hoping to do that this afternoon, and I. Or sometime today, let's just put it that way. After getting some feedback from the others, we thought, well, I think after, you know, the afternoon would probably work better than the evening. And so I'm going to make a proposal slash announcement right now. And that is that we would have the, the brothers meeting between 2 and 3 o'clock back here at the church. Now, I'm making some assumptions. I'm assuming that for the fellowship meal, the park will be available. We'll go down there and have, have our meal and have some time of fellowship and then come back up here at... Two, two o'clock, maybe I should say 1.55, meet from two to three. I think an hour would probably be enough. But I'm open to feedback. If any of you say, look, it's just not going to work. I, we have other plans, whatever. The, the, the little bit of feedback that I did get, I think it's going to work. But um, if, uh, if it doesn't work, you, you let me know. We can, we're flexible with that. And as far as who should be there, my thought was the heads of households at least uh, – at a minimum, the heads of household uh, men. Um, if, if you could at least be here, that would be good. If you want to bring your teenage boys also, that should be okay as far as I know. Um, but again, if they have other things going, they don't want to take time out of the afternoon to be here, I, I think that would also be okay. So that's, I guess, up to each family. All right, so that's another announcement. I guess if you have questions, get a hold of me after the service regarding that. Okay. Well, once again, welcome here. Last Sunday, I had uh, made an announcement about what I would be sharing this Sunday. And this came about because of so often I get asked questions. And we get asked questions uh, as, I'm, as I'm talking to people on the phone lines, working with CAMS, billboard program, people ask these questions. I start writing them down. You know, wow, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I, should, I should write that down and think about it and and maybe work it into a message sometime. And then another question comes up that's totally unrelated to the first one. And then we have a discussion here, you know, with some of you brothers or other Christians. 
And a, again, a totally different question than, than, than uh, the, the people on the billboard would typically ask. And so we got this whole list of questions. I thought, you know, it'd be interesting sometime to have a series of messages just dealing with some of these questions. They're not really connected to each other necessarily, but they're questions that tend to come up over and over again. In, in unbeliever circles, a certain group of messages or questions will come up. Uh, the skeptics, they tend to ask a lot of the same type of questions. You know, where did God come from? That's a big one. If, if, uh, if, if Cain married somebody, where did Cain get his wife? Um, what, what can really God do? You know, this, they try to trap you. If God is so big and he can do anything, well, could he uh, make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? Um, you know, just crazy questions like that. There's, there's things, just the other day I got one. What does God think about climate change? And, uh, okay, wow, I, I don't know what to do with that one exactly. Uh, th then there's things about the Bible. You know, what about, what does God say about, uh, um, you know, some of the, well, the, the, the subject of hell, that comes up quite a bit. How could an all-loving God send somebody to hell? What if God is all-knowing and he knows who is going to be right with him ultimately? Well, if that's true, we don't have any choice, do we? How could there be free will if God already knows where we're going to end up? And on and on down the line we go. Questions about the Bible, questions about life, um, questions about who God is, and, and so forth. And so my thought was, and the announcement last Sunday was, well, let's just pick out some of these and we'll get started. And we'll go down through some of these questions and we'll try to answer them. And so I picked out a few. I, if, if we have time, maybe up to five of them. And, um, and, and we'll, we'll see how far we get. If we get stuck and just... You know, we have to quit before we get through them. That's absolutely fine. But my favorite type of question are ones that you can, if it's stated clearly enough, that you can just open up the Bible and just simply read verses and let the Bible answer it for you. Not all questions are, are, are that way. Many of them are not. Many of them you got to use some of your own reasoning, and then you always are kind of on shaky ground a little bit. But if possible, it's sure nice just to open up the Bible and let the Bible answer those questions for you. And um, another thing I've noticed about questions, questions can vary so much. Even though you're talking about the same general topic, if the question is not stated correctly, you run yourself into trouble in a very quick time period. And I'm going to use, just to introduce this whole idea of questions, I'm going to use a question that I think probably the majority of us here would agree in principle on what the answer is to that question. So, you know, we maybe not, not, maybe not 100%, but... For the most part, we would probably agree with it, and yet I'm going to illustrate by this question how stating the question in different ways can get you completely different answers, can get you completely different uh, results, and, and, and the murkiness of the answer or the clarity of it. And so this first question I'm going to write up here on the board, and I'm going to back this up to kind of where we used to be so I don't have to walk so far between me and the, the chalkboard here. But... Question number one that we want to deal with this morning. Is my salvation in Christ secure? Is my salvation in Christ secure, comma, or 
Can I lose my salvation? You ever hear that question before? Can I lose my salvation? And I might be writing too big to get all these questions on the, on the board. But that's a question that comes up. In fact, whole books have been written about that question. Is my salvation Christ secure or can I lose my salvation? And we're talking to people who are believers, I assume. Now, if, if not, uh, you know, the message of Jesus says that whosoever will may come. You can come to him. You can be saved of your sins. You can be forgiven. That's the invitation of Christ. And, and to do that... He calls us to repent. He calls us to trust in him, surrender our lives to him, and, and live for him. But once I've done that, I've come to him and I've been born again. The question is, can I ever lose that standing that I have with Christ? And the way this question, which is a very popular question, is phrased, leaves you with a little bit of a dilemma. On one side it says, my salvation is secure. Or the other side says, I can lose my salvation. And my question is, are those the only two options? That's the way it's phrased, is that there's only two options here. Either I'm secure, or it's possible for me to lose my salvation. And that's the way the question is often asked in Christian circles today. Again, whole books are written about this. And so often when you get these questions... You have to cross out the questions and change the question before you can answer it from the Bible. And so we're going to do that here. We're going to cross this one out and ask two questions instead of one. Okay, the two questions that we have, again, talking to believers, those who have been born again. We're going to ask the question, um, I'm going to, I wrote it down. Okay, first one is, can I have security in Christ? Can I have security in Christ. That's question number one. And I'm sure you're probably having trouble reading my writing, especially as I get smaller here, but I'll read it out loud to you so you can write it down if you want to. And then we're going to ask another question. And we've got, a, we've got a period here at the end here. We don't have a comma. It's a period. Because we're going to start over with a new question now. Actually, that ought to be a, a, a question mark, shouldn't it? Okay. Can I have security in Christ? Question mark. Okay, and uh, then we're going we're gonna to ask another question. If so, is that security conditional or unconditional? I'm going to put on here conditional or unconditional. This is another question. But we're going to answer these questions one at a time, and these are, these are some of the questions that we can answer from the Bible. Okay, so now you just listen. You don't have to turn to all these, but I want you to... Think about this. Can I have security in Christ? Is it possible for a person, after they come to Christ, to rest in the security that he gives? And I'm going to answer this from the Bible, so you listen. And this is a yes or no question. And so I think after I ask the question in this way and read these verses, you're going to have an answer, a yes or a no, to the question, can I have security? Okay, so let's answer the question. Can I have security in Christ, yes or no? Uh, Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. John 10, 27, 28 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 2 Timothy 1, 12 says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 
Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't those some wonderful promises? Do we have an answer to this first question? Can I have security in Christ? The answer is a very clear yes, we can. Question has been asked, question has been answered. Now we're ready to go on to a different question. Are there conditions to my security in Christ? Or is it unconditional? That's a different question than the first question. Let's ask that question again and let's answer it from, from Scripture. So listen to that. Listen to these verses from the Bible. Matthew 10, 22. He who endures to the end shall be saved. John 8, 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. John 15, 1, 2, and 6. I am the true vine, and my father is the husband. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it, that it bring forth more fruit. If a man abide not in me, he has cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. How about this one? Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Whosoever there shall for, therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Romans 11, 21, 22. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare not thee. Behold, therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, goodness. If thou continue in his, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shall be cut off. 2 Timothy 2.12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Again, we're looking for that little word if because we're looking for conditions. Are there any conditions? Are there conditions to our security in Christ? 2 Peter 1.10, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Revelation 3.5, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And you know, we haven't even started on the book of Hebrews yet, and all the condition after condition after condition that's in there. So once again, we could ask the question, is there security in Christ? Yes. But are there conditions to that security? And the answer, once again, is yes, there are conditions. And if we don't meet that, those conditions, then yes, we can lose our salvation. So you see the difference between asking a badly worded question and a well-worded question. If it's a badly worded question, you're going to get bad answers no matter what you try to do. It's going to end up bad. But if you phrase the question in a better way, can I have security? Yes. Are there conditions? Is it conditional or unconditional? Now we can start getting somewhere. We can ask, we can get good answers. Here's another one that comes up. This is number two of the five questions that I picked out today. And this is a popular question. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Is baptism necessary for salvation? Are you sure you want to 
dig into that one. That's kind of a well, let's think about this a little bit. There's whole denominations that have built their theology around a quest that question and the answer to it. Some of them have built their whole theology around the yes answer. Some of them built their whole theology around the no answer. And uh, I, I don't know if uh, you know how, how close we are to any of these denominations, and I don't even know if I'm getting them right. Some of you, I think, maybe used to be in various ones of these denominations, so you can correct me if I'm getting it right. But as I understand it, most Baptists, at least the ones that I've uh, associated with, with, would say clearly no. I've heard them say that anyway. And maybe there's different branches that would say something else. But they would say no, baptism is not necessary for salvation. And um, they would use verses from the Bible, good verses. Romans 10, 9, 10, 11. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thy heart that God is raised from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto salvation. With the mouth confession is made, uh, mix that up a little bit, uh, uh, is, is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a, a great verse. Acts 13, or Acts uh, 16, 31, where the Philippian jailer said, What must I do to be saved? The answer came back, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. The illustration of the thief on the cross is used. And so they would say, No, baptism is not necessary for salvation. And this is what we teach our people. Another group of, of churches is the Church of Christ. And as I understand it, they would say the opposite. They would say the answer is yes to that question. And they would use verses like Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Acts 2, 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that would be their verses they would use. And they would answer yes. And that would be what they teach their people. Yes, baptism is necessary for salvation. And so you look at that and you say, well, they both have their verses. They both have their examples. Is there any way to break this stalemate? Well, I think there is. And I think one great thing to do is change the question. Cross out the question as it's worded and use a different question and then you might be able to get somewhere. So let's do the same thing again. Let's cross this question out. And we're going to do something. We're going to ask a question that I asked many years ago when this question came across my plate. I really didn't know what to quite do with it. Um, you know, I did see some of these verses on both sides of the, the argument. And so I decide I'm going to ask a different question. Instead of the question, uh, this, I, I think this is back in the early 2000s that I asked this, probably uh, we hadn't been married more than five, five years or so probably. Um, but, but the question I ask is, is baptism part of the new birth? I'm going to abbreviate here. Part of the new birth, or is it simply a symbol of the new birth? When someone comes to Christ, is it a matter of part of that process is baptism? Or do they come to Christ and then once they've come to Christ and once they've been saved, once their name is in the book of life, then at some later point we go through the process of baptism to simply symbolize that event. And so that was the question that I went through. Is it part of the new birth, or is it simply a symbol of the new birth? Now, I didn't have a lot of resources or commentaries at my disposal. One thing I did have was a Thompson chain reference Bible. I said, I just wonder what I would find if I would open up to the back of the Thompson chain reference Bible and just read all the verses under the heading of baptism. I wonder if that might give me an answer to the question, is baptism part of coming to Christ, or is it simply a symbol of that event?
And so here's what I found. As I opened up the Thompson Chain Reference Bible, here are some of the verses that just, I just went down through all of them. I didn't skip any of them, I just read them all. And I'm going to read those to you. Now the Thompson Chain that I have at home happens to be an NASB um, instead of a, a King James, but I think it's still it, it's very consistent. Either one you would read would come out the same. So that, that's what I'm reading here from. Um, so just listen to these verses and see if you get yourself an answer to this question. Is baptism part of coming to Christ or is it a symbol of it? Uh, Acts 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, 16. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. John 3, 5. Jesus answered, Truly I say unto you, he, he, uh, Truly I say unto you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Acts 2.38, And Peter said unto them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.48, And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Acts 22.16, And now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Romans 6.3, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Galatians 3, 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Colossians 2, 12, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith into the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And finally, 1 Peter 3, 21, Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So those were the verses I read uh, 20 years ago, not quite, 15 years ago maybe. Those were the verses I read in answer to the question, where does baptism fit in? Is it part of the new birth or is it simply a symbol of the new birth? And it seemed obvious to me, wow, it seems like it's, it's supposed to be part of the new birth, part, part of that experience. And then the question comes, and, and now here's where um, you, you, you venture off of the safety of Scripture that I was just on, and when you start getting your own wording put in there, now you can make mistakes, because now I'm a man rather than just quoting from the inspired Word of God. But you know, you ask the question, well, where does, uh, you know, I thought we were saved by faith. I thought we were saved uh, by grace through faith. And uh, where, why, why do these things say uh, you know, that why is baptism a part of that? And, uh, you know, I've quoted many times, people say, what do I need to be born again? I, I usually list, list three things based on what I've just read. I say, repent. I say, believe. And finally, baptism. Repent, believe, and be baptized. And that's a lot of times what I'll quote them. And you say, well, where, where does, you know, aren't we saved by faith? What about the thief on the cross? Wasn't his faith enough? How does this all enter in? And I guess I look at it this way. It, it seemed to make sense to me that when God gave us his message of salvation and he invited whosoever will may come, he said, come to me by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. He also gave us a way to exemplify that faith. Now, in certain circles... 
that way has been, there's been various things that you've, that people have been offered to say, okay, look, you want to come to Christ? Well, you need to come by faith. Well, how do I put that into practice? And, and various answers have been given. Well, um, you need to pray this certain prayer. And here's the prayer. Pray this prayer. This is the way you exercise that faith. This is the way you lay it on the line and say, here it is. I, and you pray that prayer. You say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I've committed sins. And here they are. I've, I'm confessing them to you, but I'm coming to you. And, and I'm believing on your son, Jesus Christ. I'm receiving you as my Savior, I'm as my Lord. I commit to obey you and live for you as long as I live. And pray this prayer, and that's the way you exercise the faith that is so necessary for salvation. Other circles may say, and that, by the way, I, I think that's good. I think that's a great prayer to pray for somebody who is, who is coming to Christ. Other people will say, well, in order for you to come to Christ, we have a way for this to work out. We have an a, a aisle in the middle of our church. And if after the service, when the invitation is given, you walk that aisle, that's the way. You show your faith. And I don't think that's all bad. I think that's good. But, you know, if you really want to look just at Scripture, I believe God has given us a way to show faith. I don't believe it's baptism. I believe God has said, you want to be you, the Ethiopian eunuch. You want to... Come to Christ, you have faith, yes I do. Well, show it by baptism. The Apostle Paul, uh, you know, his eyes were open. Show it, show your faith by getting baptized. Um, you know, Cornelius, everyone, every, I think it's consistent. And that's the thing with a well-worded question, you don't have to pit scripture with scripture. It all becomes consistent. I think this is consistent. I, I think this answer that I'm giving now is a consistent answer. I don't see anything in scripture that would that would contradict them. Come to Jesus by faith and show your faith by getting, by, by getting baptized. And, and again, I'm all in favor of walking the aisle and the sawdust or whatever they have, and I'm all in favor of praying the prayer. And those, are, those are good things as well. But if you, you know, look just at the way Jesus', Jesus own words, he seems to say over and over again that the way he is ordained for us to come to him is, is, um, is through faith, by, by, uh, by grace, through faith, and, uh, and then getting baptized to show it. So that's, that's my two bits. And again, I know I've added some there. I, I didn't stop with just Scripture. I know that's where we get into trouble. That's where the debates start. It's when man's ideas start to come. But uh, that's, that's as I see it. And again, I think, it's, I think it is consistent as you look at all these. And if you want a list of these, hey, you know, go get a Thompson chain reference, or you can ask me for a copy of it or take a picture of it. But it was interesting, that little study I did 15 years ago. So now we're down to two questions. We're, we passed through two questions. Is my salvation in Christ secure, or can I lose my salvation? But we changed that to two questions. Can I have security in Christ? And if I do have security in Christ, is it conditional or unconditional. Then we ask the question, is baptism necessary for salvation? And, uh, you know, again, you have denominations that'll hang their hats on certain verses, and some of them get it down to the point where, hey, you don't even have to repent and believe. Just as long as you're baptized, you're saved. You know, that's, that's one ditch they go into. And then the other ones go in the ditch of, hey, just ignore baptism. It's not necessary. Don't worry about it. Just believe you're good. Um, but we change that question. Once we change it to a better question... <coughs> Is it part of the salvation experience or is it simply a symbol? Now I think we can have good answers from Scripture. We're going to go on to number question number three. And I'm just going to put up here on the board a reference. I'm going to abbreviate this just a little bit. The question starts with what? 
what, what is it, and then I'm not going to write this whole thing out, but I'm going to put a reference in here. Sorry about my backing up here. Colossians 2, and it's 20 through 23. Okay. Put dot, dot, dot. Now, I'm going to tell you what that question is. What is it exactly that Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23 is prohibiting? That's a question that comes up a lot. Not so much on the billboard lines. This is one that comes up in Christian circles. Now, Colossians 2, verse 23, it says some things in there that says, do not do this. Or it says, why do you do it, implying that you should not do it. Okay, so I, I wanna, I'm going to read these verses to you. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23. Um, and, and as you notice, I'm just jumping around question to question. There's really no connection, at least not very much connection, between these first three questions that we've asked. They're just kind of random questions. I, maybe I picked them a little bit in the order of how often sometimes they come up. I don't know if that's exactly true or not, but um, th this, is, this is what we're doing this morning, a question and answer session. Um, Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23 says this, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all perish, all to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will worship and humility and neglecting the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I'm going to read it again. This time I'm going to read it in the ESV. If, you, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, there you have a pretty uh, powerful scripture. It's definitely saying, don't do something. It's saying, if you do this, you're in the wrong. Whatever it is, it's talking about. And so there's no question that it's prohibiting it. The question is, what exactly is it prohibiting? I mean, we have a responsibility to not do this. We need to avoid whatever it is that it's telling us not to do. Maybe even tell other people around us not to do whatever it is that it's telling us not to do. All right, so let's just see if we can explain this. Let's, let's talk about some possible explanation. Well, it has the word in here, at least in the ESV, it has the word regulations. And so we're going to see, well, how, do we put the, how could we possibly interpret Colossians 2, verses 20 to 23? And by the way, if you want to open it up in your own Bible and follow along, that's, that's great. I wrote them down in my paper, a lot of these, so I didn't have to uh, read them all. But when we come up with an interpretation of Scripture, there's a couple of requirements. Number one, it needs to be reasonable. If it simply doesn't fit sound reasoning, we've got a problem. Number two, it's got to agree with other Scripture. If it doesn't agree with other Scripture, it just tramples on everything else you read in the New Testament, it's probably not a good interpretation either. So let's just go through some possible interpretations of what Colossians 2 is talking about here. Here's one. It says, don't submit to these regulations. So maybe, here's one possible thing, that this verse is telling us simply don't obey any regulations, commands, or rules ever. 
That's one possible interpretation. Now we'll start by comparing that to Scripture. Is that reasonable? Well, Jesus said what? If you love me, obey my commands. So that would trample on what Jesus said if that was right. Don't ever obey any commands or rules or anything ever. Any, any, any commands, regulations. If that was true, it would trample on what Jesus said. That, that must not be the right interpretation. Here's another one. Here's another possible one. Don't obey any commands about touching, tasting, or handling. Because that's what it says here. It gives some example. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. But what does the New Testament say? It says those, some of those very things. Don't taste. Well, don't eat blood. Acts chapter 15. It says uh, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says don't handle the word of God deceitfully. So again, if those three words were the key words we want to avoid, well, the rest of the New Testament would kind of say, no, that doesn't seem like a, a possible or reasonable explanation either. Okay, well, let's change it then. Maybe this verse is saying don't obey any human commands. Let's say that human commands are something that people other than God came up with. So that, you know, the New Testament would be out of this. Um, but, but, but it's any, 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 anything that a human tells us. But what if a human will tell us, hey, I don't want you to tell lies. I don't want you to steal. Well, God already said that. So that must not be the right it must be okay for me to tell people not to lie if God already said, don't lie. So we change it again. We say, well, okay, well, don't obey any human commands ever unless it can be proven that it's a command of God. Maybe now we're getting somewhere. Is that what this passage is telling us? If, if it's not clearly spelled out in the New Testament, then don't ever obey anything that a human tells you to do. All right, is that reasonable? Okay, what about this? Uh, a dad says to his son, son, I want you to keep your hands off this gun or stay away from that dangerous water or um, I want you to, you know, behave yourself in this way. Well, dad, I'm sorry. You're going to have to show me in the Bible where it says that. If you can't show me, then Colossians forbids me to obey you. Is that reasonable? No, no, that doesn't seem reasonable either. What about servants obey your masters? Because, see, the New Testament says children obey your parents. It says servants obey your masters. It says citizens obey kings and those in authority. So that seems like an unreasonable way to apply this either. So we we're, we're, we're keep going. We're exploring possible explanations for the passage that we just quoted up here. Okay, well, maybe we want to change it. Don't obey. Maybe this is the right way to interpret this. Don't obey any human command if it's given in a religious context, maybe that's what we're talking about here. You know, if it's given by a church or a church leader, um, you know, whatever, a standard, a rule, brotherhood agreements, all that, that would be out. Unless it's simply repeating whatever's in the New Testament. Maybe that's what this is talking about. If it's in a religious uh, setting. So don't ever obey anybody, anything that anybody tells you to do in a religious context unless it's exactly word for word what's in the New Testament. Well, let's examine that. There's, uh, maybe that sounds reasonable. The only problem is we got a couple things in the Bible that say do obey them that have the rule over you. And it clearly is talking about church leaders in that case. It says submit yourselves one to another, so the wider brotherhood. There's a submission there that's commanded, so it would seem to contradict itself if, if that's what it's saying. Uh, problem number two is, is, is that particular way of applying the New Testament is it consistent with the rest of the New Testament? First of all, remember, when this was written, the New Testament didn't even exist. 
he was in the process of writing the New Testament, but he didn't even call it the New Testament. The New Testament never calls itself the New Testament that I can think of, unless it's, uh, you know, there in Hebrews talks about a new covenant or something, but it doesn't apply to these 27 books that we talk about and say there's a big bright line between these 27 books and everything else in the world. It doesn't seem to apply that. I remember I was talking to, um, it was John D. Martin, we were back there and we were talking about these verses and he said, well, you know, if that is the line that Paul intended to draw here, think about how awkward this would be. You know, you turn to uh, 1 Timothy 2.9 and there it says about the sisters that they're not supposed to adorn themselves with braided hair, gold, pearls, or costly array. Okay. That's what it says. Gold, pearls, costly array, braided hair. So those are the things it mentioned. What doesn't it mention? It doesn't mention anything about diamonds. It doesn't mention anything about emeralds or rubies or silver. And so if a church was to say any of those other things, that would automatically be wrong because it's on this side of the big bright line, whereas if you say gold or pearls or costly array, it would be on the other side, and, and that's on this side, so that's okay. But he says, you see how awkward that could be, and that's an emphasis that even the New Testament never puts on itself as a 27 set-apart book. So again, there's an awkwardness and a, and, a, and a problem with that application as well. And so all these possible explanations have been brought forward seem to... They seem to just run into roadblocks as we compare Scripture with Scripture. So the question is, well, what does he mean? I mean, he means something, and he's saying very clearly, don't do this. Don't submit to these rules and these regulations, whatever it is he's talking about. And see, that's where we don't know all the specific details of what was going on here, but what we do know is we know what context he was talking in. We have the context of the New Testament, and, as, and, and I'm gonna, we're going to share that in just a moment, but it's the same context when you turn to Romans 4, verse 5. You know what it says there? It says, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You know what that says? To him that worketh not, he can be saved. Don't do any works if you take just that verse by itself. Works are absolutely, in fact, you shouldn't work. You shouldn't do any good works if that verse was taken only by itself. And you look in James and it seems to contradict that because it's there it says you're justified by works and not by faith only. Jesus, let them see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Romans, it talks about how we're going to be judged ultimately on the final day based on our works. And so there would be a problem with that. But both of these verses are interpreted and we get an answer when we discover what the context was. What struggle was Paul in? It's found very clearly. You can read it if you want. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It sets the stage for an ongoing conflict that seemed to last throughout this New Testament period. There's a group of people. We call them Judaizers today. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And then it says Paul and Barnabas had a big dispute with them. And so that's circumcision and keeping the law of Moses. This is the context for this entire struggle that's going on in the book of Romans, this struggle that's going on in Colossians, the struggle that's going on throughout Galatians, even the struggle there in Ephesians where it says, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is gift, gift, gift to God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Every one, every time the Bible mentions works in that context, 
I, think, I don't think there's any exceptions. I haven't found them anyway. It always, in the broader scheme, it's talking about going back and, and, and forcing the Gentiles to keep the Old Testament law. That's what it's talking about. It's not talking about obedience to Jesus, and it really isn't even talking about church applications today. Now, I'm not going to say that, you know, we can stand here and we can talk about some of those uh, church applications and can they, you know, be abused and all those. That's a whole different subject. All I'm saying is Colossians 2 isn't talking about that. It's talking about something else. That's a good discussion, another discussion for another day. But that's not what Colossians 2 is talking about. And it's not talking about commands parents give to their children. It's not talking about the rules that your boss has laid down at work. It's not talking about government officials putting a sign up by the road saying 55 miles an hour, no more. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the Old Testament law. So, you know, don't try to say that so you go before a judge and say, I drove, you know, 75 in a 55 zone. But, hey, Colossians says I couldn't obey that verse. Uh, so it's not going to work. Colossians does say don't do something. But... If you turn to Acts 15, it tells you exactly what it's talking about there. So, okay. Um, that's question number three that we have. We've got 15 minutes left. Here's a question that comes up over and over again on the billboard line. What happens to those who have never heard? I'll abbreviate that by saying never heard. What happens to those? And, and the implication is this. People bring up these things and they say, okay, you're, you're saying everybody uh, is going to hell if they don't have Jesus. Well, what does the Bible say? Revelation chapter 20. All whose names were not in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. That's a sobering, sobering truth. Well, people, skeptics, they call the billboard line and they say, Yes, but what about these poor people over in Africa and they've simply never heard the gospel. They've never had a chance to believe. They've never, they don't have any idea who Jesus is. What about them? And the implication is this. If we can prove that God is unfair in his punishment of sinners, then we have a good reason to just deny him completely. We don't have to. We don't have to pay any attention to him. That's the implication. So these questions, they come up, and they come up often. They come up over and over again. How do we answer these questions? Um, is God really going to condemn people to hell who have never heard the message or had a chance to be saved? You know what? There's something powerful you can sometimes say when you get into a tight spot, and that's simply, I don't know. Now, I'm not going to just stand here and say I don't know because the good news is we do know some things. And I share some of these things with people. I usually don't go through this whole list, but what do we know? Let's just ask the question, what happens to those who have never heard? Well, first of all, we know that God is a God of love. Is that fair? We know God. He's, he's, God is love. First John, uh, it says that very clearly. All right, there's one thing we know. Number two, we know Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's another thing we know. That's a truth that we can hang our hat on, that no one can come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. Number three, Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. And sometimes I'll get stopped right there. Oh, so you are saying, yes, they, 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 they go to hell. Well, I just know these verses are absolutely true. 
And after I tell you everything I know, then I'm going to let God be the judge. But this is one thing we know, that you can't come to God in any other way except through Jesus. We also know, according to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We also know that the law of God is written on their hearts. Even of the Gentiles who have never heard the message, there's a law of God written on their hearts so that they're without excuse, it says. You say, well, what does that mean exactly? Well, I don't know, but I know it's true because God says so. It even says in Romans 1 that creation is preaching to people. The creation around us, the sky, the trees, the planets, they preach to people about God's nature. And it says there, they're without excuse. Here's another thing that we know. Is that according to Luke chapter 12, those who know more information, like us sitting in this building right now. We live in a land where we can go to Walmart, we can buy a Bible, we have all the information that we need to get right with God. People who know more, who have more information about God on judgment day will be held more responsible than the people who have less information. That's what Jesus said, Luke chapter 12. What does that mean exactly? He talked about them being you know, punished with more stripes that have more information, punished with less stripes that have less. All right, so that's another thing we know. What else do we know? Well, we know that Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So if you know the truth and you know that there's somebody out there that doesn't know the truth, what are you supposed to do? Sit here and argue about what's going to happen to them on Judgment Day or go tell them? God says, go tell them. Um, And finally, we know that God is going to be the final judge. Those are some things that we know and we can rest in that. And uh, so I I a lot of times share those truths with them and say, look, uh, here's what we know. There isn't salvation in any other. So therefore... You know, rather than trying to trap God into what you are saying is some sort of an injustice, you go obey God, submit your life to God, and then go tell those who don't know. All right, that's question number four. I had one more question here written down, and I'll just put it up here. What should our attitude be toward the word culture? Again, this more comes up in Christian circles. Culture, this whole idea of, of culture. And, you know, we have cultures out, you know, the, you have the sports culture and the cowboy culture and religious circles. You might have the, you know, the, the Amish culture and the, uh, you know, d- different ones of these culture. They're, they're, they're defined. There's certain ways that they live. Uh, a lot of times similar things that they work at, ways, similar ways that they, they dress and their types of entertainment. Uh, you know, how much they're involved in music and sports and those kind of things. And, and, and so th- those are what define cultures among us. How should we relate to that word, culture? That's a question that comes up often, so I put it on my list. Maybe it's a dangerous thing to put these things on your list. But I did, so here we are. Um, and as I have gone, uh, you know, gone through life, it seems to me that I've noticed two different ditches that people use when they find out this word culture, go in two different ditches. Number one... Um, overemphasizing it, saying, look, unless you're part of a particular culture, you cannot be saved. That's, that's almost what I've heard. Maybe not in those exact words, but almost that mentality. That culture is so important that if, you know, if you don't stay Amish, you can't be saved. You're not, or, you know, in the, you know, in the Mormon circles. Well, if you're not Mormon, you got to be part of this group, whatever it is. There's, there's some of that mentality that is not, if not articulated exactly those words, at least it comes through. That's one ditch that people go into. The other ditch is this, underemphasizing the culture, saying it has no influence on me at all. 
And that's another ditch that I think we can fall into is to say that the culture that I surround myself with doesn't have any effect on me, doesn't have any effect on my family. I shared this before, I'll share it again. The, the flower pot illustration. There was a man who, I heard this story. I didn't witness it myself, never talked to him myself, and so I could very well be changing the details, and I don't know that that hurts in this particular case, but this was a man who had once been part of a very structured culture, and he felt stifled in it. He felt like he could do more for the Lord by leaving that culture. He left, he went and did a, you know, did a number of years in, in some other culture or cultures, there was more, in his mind, freedom. He could more express himself in the way God wanted him to. But not everything turned out the way he wanted. He came back, finally, to one of those more structured cultures. And he, in, in sharing why he made that decision to come back to something more structured than he had been in for a number of years, he pulled out a flower pot and he just, he just used this illustration. He pulls off that soft outer protective you know, from this, from this plant. And around there is dirt. He says, once you get in there to that dirt, you see this soil there. He says, that soil is absolutely dead. There, there, the, the, the soil itself isn't going to grow into a flower. The only place that there's life is if you dig through that soil and you finally get to that root of the rose or whatever the flower is, and that's where the life is. And if there is no life there... This flower pot is meaningless, it's empty, it's not fulfilling at all the purpose that it's called to fulfill. And so he said that that life is the life of Christ in us. But he says that dirt around it is like the culture. And he says that culture, that dirt, is very instrumental in bringing the nutrients to that life. The quality of that dirt is going to have a tremendous impact on the life that's there. It doesn't mean that the life cannot exist without the culture. It can. And that's, like I say, that's, that can be one ditch that people go into. Say, it's impossible to have any life at all without the culture. It's not true. There's people in prisons in China. They don't have people around them at all, but they're living for God. And, and uh, so, but, but it does have an influence. And that's what he was saying, is that dirt around that flower has a tremendous influence. And so his encouragement by his illustration is, choose carefully. When you're making choice, choices regarding culture, don't overemphasize it and say somehow, just by being part of a particular culture, I'm therefore saved and on my way to heaven. That's not true. But when you choose culture, make cultural choices, choose wisely, because those choices will have an impact on you. And um, this is more for the, 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 church, uh, the, the church here locally. You know, we're part of other groups that have, have uh, kind, somewhat banded together. We, have, we, get, we get oversight from uh, Mark Brubaker back at Living Hope, and, and uh, there, there's other churches that have kind of pulled together. And, and just recently I got this email, Statement of Belief Among the Churches. I think there's a minister's meeting coming up here in the next couple of weeks, sometime this month. And they said, you know, we've been talking to people. We've been talking to pastors and teachers and other people within our church uh, groups. And we've been trying to pulled together what do we believe? What is it that defines the group of churches that somewhat loosely fellowship together? We have Bible school together. We send our youth to fellowship together. What are the things that, that define us? And so they put together this statement of belief. And I thought I'd just read parts of it here. It says this statement, of, and as we're reading, you'll notice some things that are clear statements of doctrine. These are what the Christian faith is about. Other things are a little bit more on the area of, uh, 
we want to protect not only our faith, but sort of, it has to do somewhat with our culture. They had this because, again, they're recognizing culture does make a difference. So it says, the statement of belief presented here is intended to be a listing of a number of issues our churches face today and give a short and practical description of our position. It's not intended to be a comprehensive statement of the doctrines we hold since many of our churches have a more extensive confession of faith and practice on major doctrines. It's a desire to bring clarity to the values we hold in these issues and draw us together as churches to be of one heart and mind. So the first one is faith confirmed by a change of life with good works. The members of each church must be born again, spirit-filled, and live a life, a Christ-centered life, and live in obedience and have a changed life. Separation from the world. We're called to be a citizens of a heavenly country. Uh, number three, fulfilling the Great Commission. Um, and, you know, we're called as believers to go and preach the gospel to every creature. This is part of what being a Christian is all about, sharing the gospel with others. The Christian home. Uh, a commitment to have our marriages and homes in good repair, children in submission to their parents, conservative Anabaptist persuasion, churches that hold to a conservative Anabaptist persuasion. We're concerned about the influence and, so, and sometimes acceptance of Protestant and Calvinistic doctrines. Maybe that's sometimes unintentional, but it's there. Compromise on a number of points uh, is, is many times the fruit of these influences. Abstaining from political involvement, separation from the world, saving faith including obedience are some of the doctrines that tend to corrupt these theologies. Uh, membership and accountability, churches that require commitment or uh, membership for accountability and responsibility. Number eight, willing to make relevant practical applications. Number nine, modesty and simplicity in dress and lifestyle. And it uh, talks about you know, how we need to take care not to drift by, drift by gradual steps away from the simplicity and modesty. And it brings some specifics in there about men's clothing and women's clothing and so forth. Uh, worldly entertainment, music, movies. We believe shunning of worldly entertainment has been a defining mark of true church through the ages, beginning with the church in the days of the apostles and down to the present day. The testimony has always been called to abstain, abstain from these fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We see these influences are assaulting us on every side, and we must be vigilant and rejecting them in tangible and practical ways. Movies, media of theatrical proportions, the theater itself are to be rejected, even when it claims to be Christian or be of religious benefit. Using a cappella singing in our services, are people free of CCM, country music, and other forms of light, fluffy music? Um, sports and recreation. Talks about our attitude toward that. While it's not we believe it's not consistent for Christians to profess separation from the world and yet follow with the world in their pursuit of sports entertainment. So we're be to be free from professional sports, Super Bowl watching, attending games, following teams, or participating in church leagues rather than being kingdom-minded and focused. And then we recognize the need for rest and refreshment, but recreation of any kind should not be in excess of time, money, whether it's hunting, fishing, or any other kind of hobbies. Um, luxurious lifestyles, and they said in there like cruises and different things like that. Uh, technology, and talked about the dangers of technology and internet, smartphones, and how we should uh, you know, guard against that. We discourage youth from having unrestricted access to internet on digital devices. Um, talks about divorce and remarriage, how to relate to those in a, fam in, like in a family setting. Nonviolence and non-resistant. You know, Jesus said, love our enemies. Litigation, suing at the law. Number 17, non-swearing of oaths. Number 18, what we believe about women in leadership. Number 19, what we believe about political and social activism. Uh, number 20, prescription drug abuse. So they're concerned about that. 
Number 21, the blessing of family and children. Um, number 22, occultic dabbling. We refrain from any form of occultism and exercise care to discern those practices. Among these are divination, water witching, astrology, horoscope, transcendental meditation, and ventriculism. Some alternative medicine practices we believe are occultism, such as reflexology, iridology, applied kinesiology, homeopathic medicine, Reiki, and yoga. Talked about God-honoring weddings. Weddings are to be Christ-centered. Church event, free from worldly mindset, not following the practices of the society around us, but a reflection of our commitment to Christ and to holiness. Our weddings should not violate the principles of modesty, purity, and avoiding excesses or frivolity. And then God-honoring courtship. Courtship that involves the parents, and to some degree, the church leaders. We believe that courtship and we believe that in courtship and prior to marriage, a couple should refrain from any affection, touching, or handling, restraint being a practical obedience to the scripture's admonishment to, admonition to purity. We use the term hands-off courtship to identify and describe what we mean in this manner. We teach and admonish that this is the standard we, to be practiced in our all courtships. And then talks about heathen Christmas practices. It talks about the Christmas holiday and you know, what all has gone on there. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to sing songs about Christ's birth. It's another thing to get involved in all the paganism and so forth that is being uh, established. And so, you know, there's some things. And I, I read that. I read that with, uh, you know, things going through my mind. I thought, well, well that, some of these are new thoughts to me. I hadn't really thought of them before, that that's an area of concern. A lot of them it had crossed my mind already. Um, but when I thought about the fact that I'm listening to other brothers in Christ, brothers that are very close to me, brothers that are in similar churches to me. It made it so that I couldn't just brush them away and say, oh, I don't agree with that point, cross that off the list. I'm here to listen, you see. And as a brother in a brotherhood, and even a larger brotherhood with other people outside that have an influence on us and our young people, to listen to each other becomes a very valuable thing, submitting to ourselves and one to another in the fear of God. So right away when I received this paper, having not even read it, it at least had my ears, had my attention. As I read through those, I said, you know, that's right. That's very easy. This point right here, you can point to scripture and verse, and it says, don't do this or do this or whatever. And so there's no question. Other things were a little bit more gray. Well, you can't point to a scripture and verse. And yet, it's the heart of the brothers. It's the heart of our church brothers. And so I'm going to listen to them at least, and I'm going to say, yeah, this, uh, you know, tell, tell me why you're concerned about this, and tell me what your basis is for saying we don't want this. And, you know, if they say, look, this just isn't part of who we are, that doesn't sound like a good reason at all, but they still have my attention. Because when we are part of a culture and we bring something new into that culture, it does affect everybody, whether we like it or not. Um, it, it changes the entire culture when we're part of it. Now, if you're not part, if you've just got a whole bunch of individuals out there that aren't connected in any way to each other, it doesn't have as widespread of an event. But that's not really the way we are here. We're a lot closer than that as a fellowship. I'm thankful we are. And so it's something to think about. When I do bring something new to the table, good or bad, it changes everybody. That's just the way things are. It's just the way cultures work, the way people work. So anyway... Um, it is, uh, we're five minutes past here. I apologize for that, but I thank you for staying awake and thank you, thank you for listening. And I think it'd be good to just bow for prayer here. And uh, when, then after that, next time I get up here, I don't know if it'll be in a month or when it is, but uh, we'll go on. I got 
quite a list of other questions, and we'll go through those one at a time, Lord willing. So thank you for paying attention. Let's bow for prayer.